Good morning. Good morning. morning. Um, We've just had a reminder of just how important our friends and our family are to us and how precious they are. And uh, I just want to begin by mentioning on on Monday I went to to visit Frank, who's uh, down in the Royal Hospital, and uh, he sends blessings and greetings to us. When I was chatting to him, I said I was speaking on Sunday, and uh, he asked what I was speaking on, and he said, not surprisingly, well, I've got a poem on that, so... (laughs) So, uh, with your permission, I'd just like to begin by just reading Frank's poem, which is very pertinent to what we're going to speak about this morning. It's called Freedom from Slavery to Sin. When the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, God told Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh refused to obey God's command. Alas, God's judgment, he would soon know. The firstborn of every household in Egypt would be smitten this night and die. And so it was with the beasts in every house, from the greatest to the least. Today we are no longer slaves of Pharaoh, but to Satan, habit, vice and sin. Jesus came back to break our chain, cleanse and dwell within. Are you really happy being held captive, or longing from sin to be set free? If you will freely repent, confess and ask him, Jesus your saviour will gladly be. The lamb had to die and his blood had to be shed. There is no other way for salvation, no other instead. Jesus died on the cross that we need not die, but be free from all sin and praise him on high. One of the many privileges in preparing a sermon is that you need to spend a considerable amount of time meditating upon and thinking through what God has said in his word. And as you do so, you begin to get a real sense of knowing God far more intimately than you did before. And over the past seven or eight months, I've been engrossed in the book of Romans. And having done so, I feel that I'm also beginning to get to know the letters human author, Paul, too. The Bible is divinely inspired, or more precisely, expired. It's God-breathed. And God has breathed out his words to his chosen authors in such a way to say precisely what he wants to say, without diminishing the personalities of its human writers. And one of the things that stand out to me about Paul is that he was a brilliant teacher. And having worked in education for nearly 30 years, and I know that millions of pounds have been spent and they've gone into researching how people learn best. Now, had they studied Paul's method of teaching, they could have saved themselves a considerable amount of time, effort and money Now, just thinking back to when I was a student in school, my method of study, which probably was pretty similar to yours, well, thinking back to O-level and A-level courses, they sort of lasted two years, and I can remember sort of going through them without remembering a great deal until a few weeks before the exam and then trying to cram it all in. We call it revision, but it's more vision than revision. Um, And you hopefully retained enough to pass the exam and then... Six weeks later, after the summer holidays, you find that you'd forgotten most of it. However, research has shown that the best way to learn is to study a range of topics at first at a superficial level, and then to regularly revisit each topic to refresh your understanding before adding more deep, uh, more depth and detail in the next cycle. So by going through each topic, not necessarily in the same order, but by going through each topic in a cyclical fashion, each time refreshing your knowledge before adding more depth, you're more likely to retain and develop your learning. 
Now this is exactly what we see Paul doing through chapters 3 to 8 in this letter. He's trying to teach various different aspects, various different ways we can view the gospel. In chapter 3, Paul introduced the theme of justification. In chapter 4, he developed the theme by teaching that justification comes by faith and then revisited justification as a legal argument in the second half of chapter 5, which we were looking at last time. At the beginning of chapter 5, Paul considered the gospel in terms of reconciliation. And as God willing, we shall see later on, he develops and deepens our understanding of reconciliation throughout Romans chapter 8. Today, not surprisingly, having studied Romans 5 last time, we're going to have a look at Romans chapter 6. In chapter 6, one of the main aspects of salvation that Paul is focusing upon is redemption. Now, Paul first mentioned redemption in chapter 3, but he's left it until chapter 6 before developing this aspect of salvation further. Now, before reading chapter 6, there is one additional piece of supporting evidence that Paul was a brilliant teacher I want to draw your attention to. See, one other very important teaching method is the ability to get your students to relate their learning to their everyday experience. And this is precisely Paul's approach in teaching redemption in chapter 6. He clearly states that he is speaking to them in human terms because of their natural limitations. And as we shall see, the context is about slavery and how through slavery he brings out the meaning of redemption. Now, in first century Rome, slavery was a very normal and accepted way of life. It was part of their everyday experience. Now, when we read the term slavery, we must be careful not to bring our current understanding of what we think that means to what Paul is saying. You see, slavery is not part of my experience of everyday life. It's illegal in this country, and I'm not so naive to think that it doesn't go on. But the only time I'm made aware of it is when it's exposed by an undercover news report. However, if we're to com comprehend what Paul is teaching about redemption, we must understand what the term slavery would have meant to the recipients of this letter in first century Rome. So what was it like to be a slave in ancient Rome? Now the first thing I want to point out is the numbers involved. See, in first century Rome, one in three people were slaves. And across the empire as a whole, it was one in five. In fact, at one point, the Roman Senate did consider identifying slaves by, my, by making them wear special clothing. However, they threw out the idea because they feared that the slaves could overthrow the entire empire if they realised the strength of their numbers. But why so many? Well, the Roman Empire was an empire of conquest. And prisoners of wars were the primary source of slaves, and there were plenty of them. So slave trading became commonplace, and it was such a lucrative business that many saw an opportunity to become rich by becoming pirates, capturing unsuspecting victims and selling them into slavery. Yeah. Slaves were considered to be the property of their owners. They were seen as commodities, not people. From the owner's point of view, the number of slaves you owned was symbolic of your status. To be a slave owner was a mark of cultural superiority. Slaves, therefore, effectively did not have any rights. They had no legal status. They could not own property. They could not even form relationships or start a family. 
In fact, it was true to say a freed criminal enjoyed more rights. The owner had complete mastery over his slaves and could even kill them without fear of prosecution or punishment. Now you might be thinking, how can a human being treat another human being like that? Well, in first century Rome, from the owner's perspective, freedom was considered a privilege, not a right. Slavery was seen as a necessity, not an evil. And there was no sense of injustice on the part of the rulers. Slaves could be forced to do any type of work required. So slaves could be found working in agriculture, in construction, usually in roads. They were found in the military, but not as fighting men. You see, when you have a, a big army like the Roman army, there's an awful lot of uh, equipment and food that needs to be trans transported by the supply lines. And often the slaves would actually service those supply lines. They were found in households, in manufacturing, in the civic services, the running of the cities, even in accountancy and education. And slaves were typically very cruelly treated, often being whipped or branded. Now it was theoretically possible for slaves to be freed, usually if they were able to buy their freedom. However, for it to be legally recognised, it had to be authenticated by a magistrate and given all, all the other tasks that magistrates had to do, and given the sheer numbers involved, it would only be a very, very tiny percentage that would have actually gained their freedom. So in effect, the only escape from slavery was death. So as I read Romans 6 now, when Paul talks about us being slaves of sin, it is with this view of slavery that the recipients of the letter would have understood it as part of their daily experience. And it's in this context we must seek to understand it too. And although I've begun by drawing your attention to the fact that Paul was a great teacher, remember as I read, for Paul these matters were not merely of academic interest. For him, as you're about to see, the gospel was a matter of life and death. Now we're going to begin actually where I finished last time, and that is in Romans 5 verse 20, and we're going to read right through to the end of chapter 6. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live it in any longer? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, 
having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves, slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more, un to, to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now in this section, Paul asks very, two very important questions and they're both concerned with sin in Christians. He asks, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And about halfway through the chapter, he asks again, shall we sin because we are, no, we are not under law but under grace? And the answer to both questions is an emphatic no, certainly not. Now before addressing these questions, we need to ask, why does Paul address these issues in the first place? And the most obvious answer is, that because people in the church, there were people in the church, and in all likelihood the leaders, who actually thought it and taught it. So in the church, who in the church would think and teach that it was alright to continue in sin? Now we know from our previous studies that the church was made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers and that there was considerable tension between them. And we also know that when Paul particularly wanted to address the believers from a Jewish background, that he would address them as you who know the law. Now given that in chapter 6 there is no explicit reference to the Jewish believers, it would seem to imply that Paul is either addressing the Gentile believers in particular or the entire congregation as a whole. And I would suggest this as a likely scenario, 
that during the period when the Jews were absent from Rome, on account of the decree from Emperor Claudius, that some of the Gentiles, really realising that the gospel set people free from the law, came to see that as a licence to live pretty much as everybody else in the surrounding population lived. And we know from the description in chapter 1 just how ungodly Roman society at that time had become. It appears that some of the church had come to regard Christianity as a get-out-of-jail-free card, guaranteeing them immunity from the consequences of a sinful lifestyle. When the Jewish believers returned to the church at Rome, some tried to correct this error by teaching the law. However, it became evident that those who were teaching the law were themselves not living up to the standards they taught, and it caused considerable harm as a, as a consequence. I would therefore suggest that Paul is primarily addressing those Gentile Christians who believe that grace allowed them to continue living sinful lives. However, at the same time, he was also correcting the belief that the solution to this problem was to put people back under the law. The reason the church had got itself into this position was a consequence of a lack of proper teaching and understanding in three key areas. Firstly, they did not understand the nature of sin and its destructiveness. Had they done so, they would have realised that God, who is loving and righteous, would not be so if he permitted them to remain living in such a way that would lead to the inevitable destructiveness that sin causes. Secondly, they did not understand the purpose of, that the purpose of the law was to expose sin and reveal our need of a saviour. And lastly, they did not understand the true meaning of grace. They failed to understand that grace does not absolve people of their responsible responsibility to live in obedience to God, and their need for righteousness. They needed to understand that grace rather mean, is the means by which God forms his righteous character within us. So now let's focus on uh, what Paul has, wrote, uh, has written here. He begins by drawing their attention to the reason God gave the law. Now Paul does not enter into a full discussion of this issue. He discusses this particular issue more fully in his letter to the Galatians. Here, though, he simply stated that the law was given that the offence might abound. Or, as other translations put it, the law was added so that trespass might increase. So what exactly does Paul mean by that statement? Now, I believe that he is saying that the law was given so that we would realise the extent of our sin and how much, therefore, we need our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 5... Paul stated that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, meaning that they did not sin by breaking a direct command. Now that does not mean that people living at the time did not sin. They did. They fell short of the glory of God. They did not live as God had created them to live. Although they did not sin by breaking a direct command, they would still have been sinning against law in their consciences. Now it is much easier to reason against your conscience than when you've got a written instruction. Let's just, for example, take something like covetedness. I mean, Paul spoke about this um, later on in chapter 7. You see, when we kind of look at uh, somebody who's got a grand house and rather expensive motor cars 
on the drive out in front, it's easy to actually just to excuse yourself and uh, wish you had all that and say, well, well what harm am I doing? Um, as long as nobody knows, what's the problem? However, that's not the point. See, God does not want us to do that because that's not how he made us to be. He did not intend us to, to be like that because it's not good for us. When we cover it, it reveals that we are dissatisfied, dissatisfied with what he has given us and it reveals a murmuring, complaining heart. It also fuels pride. It's as if we're saying that God is unjust, not fair. It's a complaint against God and about how he's running this universe. It's as if we are saying that we deserve that bigger house and the smarter cars and that if we were running the universe then we would get what we think we deserve. And when we get to think like that, just stop for a minute and thank God for not giving you what you do deserve. Because the conclusion to chapter 6 is that the wages, and wages are what you deserve, the wages of sin is death. The law therefore reveals the extent of our sin. And we can reason with our consciences and convince ourselves that it's really not that bad. And we can so suppress God's law in our consciences, and I think the rulers in first century Rome had done that, which is why they were treating the slaves as they did. We can so suppress God's law in our consciences until we reach the point where every intention of our heart is continually only evil. And mankind actually reached that point. And what's more, they were able to do so and still sleep soundly at night. However, it's much harder to do that with God's written law. Yet people still do. And people still do suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And even though God has made known his requirements to us in writing, we still, as a society, suppress the truth by believing, by, by reducing belief in the true God to comparative religion. Christianity, just one of a number of religions out there, is how society sees things. In fact, modern society has developed a patronising attitude to the things of God by saying, well, it's okay for people in those days and in those cultures, but nowadays we're far too advanced and civilised for those sorts of beliefs. And we've invented sophisticated belief systems, such as evolutionary theory, in order to justify the belief that God does not exist, and therefore it's led us to believe that we're no longer accountable to him. In fact, we've reached the point where people would rather believe in aliens. I don't know if you've read the news this week. A new planet's been discovered, or they've discovered organic chemicals on, on, a, on a comet somewhere. Um, so we've reached that point where people would rather believe in aliens than in God our Creator. And do you know why people are so fascinated in searching for alien life? It's because they're holding out a hope that there is an advanced civilization out there who can solve all the problems we face on earth and not hold us morally accountable. You see, we want to be in control without the moral accountability. It's the same old lie that mankind fell for in the beginning. You shall be as gods. So the law was given to expose sin, to show the extent of sin. The law shows us what we should be and reveals how far we've fallen. It makes known our inability to keep it perfectly and therefore reveals our need of a saviour. 
However, it also reveals the abundance of God's grace is far greater. Now, the people in the Church of Rome had also not understood the true meaning of God's grace. They failed to understand that the reason that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, meant that, God's, that the grace of God was more than sufficient to rescue them. It was not, as they supposed, a license to remain in sin with a guaranteed impunity. They needed to understand that grace will take you in the opposite direction to sin. Sin and grace, Paul explains, leads you in two, to two very different destinations. Sin leads to death, but grace leads to eternal life. Now Paul has clearly stated that grace describes our standing before God. We have access by faith into the grace in which we stand, he wrote in chapter 5. And he's explained throughout chapters 3 to 5 that the grace in which we stand has come about because God himself has made propitiation for us, meaning that the Lord Jesus Christ has given himself as a perfect sacrifice of atonement in order to turn away the wrath of God that's rightly directed towards us and indeed towards sin. He's explained that it's by grace that on account of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can now stand before God fully justified for we've been declared not guilty. And it's by grace that we therefore have been reconciled to God and have peace with God. And it's by grace that we've been brought into right relationship with him and that he has poured his love into our hearts and given us the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us to do God's will and fulfil his purposes in our lives. The grace of God was therefore given to save us from sin, to set us free from being enslaved by sin and not to allow us to continue in it with God's stamp of approval. Now some of the people in the church at Rome had also failed to understand the destructive consequences of sin. See, sin causes us to become self-conscious. It reveals our nakedness. It causes us to want to isolate and hide ourselves. It causes us to want to shift the blame and not to face up to our responsibility. It causes fear. The consequences of sin are disease, decay, divorce, separation, anxiety, anguish and ultimately death. And God would not be true to his character if he permitted us to continue in sin, which is the root cause of all that is harmful to us. It's therefore inconceivable that God, who is love, would allow us to continue in sin. Grace is God's answer to sin. It will therefore take us in a completely opposite direction to sin. Let me just give you a, a very, very trivial example. If I go to Reading Railway Station, there's a railway line running east-west. If I want to go to London, I need to board the train from the eastbound platform. Now, if I end up travelling west, I'm going to end up in Swansea, even though I want to go to London. And if I find myself travelling west, the only way I'm going to get to London is to get off the train at the next station, cross over the platform and get on the train that's going in the opposite direction. Well, what Paul is stating in this chapter is pretty much the same with sin and grace. See, the destination of a life going in the direction of sin is death. The destination of a life governed by grace is eternal life. Now, if I'm going in the direction of sin, my destination is not eternal life. And if I want eternal life as my destination, I therefore need to completely change direction. 
And from my understanding, a change of direction is at the most basic sense the meaning of the word repentance. Now to leave in his readers in no doubt that this change of direction is needed, Paul describes this change in terms of life and death. In the space of just six verses, he tells them no less than eight times that they must die to their old way of life. And he does so in the most emphatic of terms. Not only must they die to sin, he states that their old way of life must be crucified, it must be buried, and that the body of sin must be done away with. Now remember, Paul is writing to believers. And many of these believers, he knows, have been baptised. He writes, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? And Paul is illustrating the point by getting them to recall the meaning of their baptism. See, when someone is baptised, they are making a public declaration that they have died to their old way of life. They have died to a life where sin reigned, and now they've been raised up to live a new life dedicated to God. Baptism is an outward sign that an inner change has taken place in that person. It's an outward declaration that the person is willing to identify with Christ in his death, just as he died, I want to die to my old life of sin, and just as he was raised to a new life, I want to be raised up to live a new life in him. And you see, baptism is not only about death, it's also about being raised to a new life. It's publicly declaring, I have been born again, born of water and the Spirit. Yes. And having been raised to new life, the believer has now been set free from the reign of sin in their life. Glory. And, when, and when someone reigns over us, it means that they have a ruling influence which we are obliged to obey. If we have died to sin and been raised to life, it means that sin and death no longer will dominate our lives. We've been set free from their ruling influence and we now have a choice. Before we had no choice, we were born like it. That was our inheritance. It was the legacy of Adam. Now in verse 11, Paul emphasises the need for his readers to understand this clearly. He states, reckon yourself, or in other versions, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. This is a fact that you need to be clear on. They need to think this through. They need to meditate upon it and get their mind set on this as a fact. Because as he goes on to explain, it will have a direct effect on their outward behaviour. Having been freed from sin, we now have a choice. There is a decision to be made. Paul gives them clear instructions as to what they should not do and what they should do. He instructs them to not allow sin to reign in their mortal bodies. In other words, do not let sin be a ruling influence in your life that you feel obliged to obey. You can no longer live as you once did. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness. Now by members, Paul is talking about every part of your body being available to serve the living God. That involves our eyes and our ears and therefore making a decision about what we choose to see and hear. And in a previous talk, I mentioned the staggering number of murders, killings, acts of violence and illicit affairs that the average American will have seen on, the, on reaching the age of 18 through a normal diet of TV, cinema and internet media. What are we choosing? What are we choosing to see and hear? 
Are our eyes and ears being presented to God daily? Are our mouths instruments of righteousness? Are our words used to edify and build up the body? Or for slander and gossip to bring others down? Are our feet and our hands surrendered to God? Are we willing to go wherever he sends us and do what he asks us to do? Is our heartfelt prayer, Lord, teach me your ways, reign over my life, show me what you would have me do, and give me the strength and the inner desire to perform your will and plan for my life. Lord, I want to express my love for you, not just in words, but in action too, and for the world to know that I belong to you. See, I don't know if Romans 6 inspired the hymn writer who wrote that beautiful hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. But uh, certainly that's the, that's the meaning that's coming through. Now Paul concludes this section by stating that sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin shall not be your master. It will not dominate you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Now I've been very careful there to emphasise the beginning of that sentence because often the first part of that sentence is missed out and people simply state that you're not under law and under grace as the means of justifying for not living in obedience to God. The clear point Paul is making is both a correction for those Jewish members of the church who are trying to control the uh, sin in the church by putting people back under the law and for those Gentile believers who thought that grace allowed them to continue in sin with God's approval. Now law and grace do have some things in common. They both reveal the character of God. In chapter 7, Paul describes the law as being holy, just and good. However, unlike grace, the law is powerless in enabling us to keep it. Simply knowing what God is like and what we should therefore be like will not empower us to overcome the dominion that sin has over us. It's only grace can do that. It's only by grace that we have peace with God. It's only by grace that he pours his love into our hearts and sends the Holy Spirit to live within our hearts. It's therefore only by grace that we receive the power and the enabling to live in obedience to him. Grace is therefore not a license to continue in the sin that brings so much harm in the present and ultimately death in the future. No, grace is the means by which God enables us to overcome sin in our lives. This brings Paul to the, to the second main question. Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? And once more he responds with an emphatic no. He then goes on to draw the reader's attention to the fact that they are slaves to the one they present themselves to obey. See, when we were made in God's image, he made us to live in active obedience. Now, as human beings, we will therefore always obey someone or something. The question is, who do you choose to obey? To whom do we present ourselves? Who do we belong to? Whose concerns are uppermost in our minds? Whose authority will we submit to? Whose moral standards will govern the way we live? And who has the right to define those standards? Now Paul states that he is using an argument from slavery as a human argument because of their limitations. He is using an, ana an analogy from their everyday experience 
in order to communicate a spiritual truth in a way that they can make sense of. When people use such analogy, we must be careful that we do not use that analogy beyond the context in which it's given. We must not try to extend the analogy to different situations and end up making a doctrine out of it. So when Paul describes believers as slaves of righteousness, it's worth remembering that a little later on in chapter 8, those slaves of righteousness are described as adopted sons of a loving Heavenly Father. Paul brings the chapter to conclusion by getting his readers to consider the consequences of their choices. Although he does not personally know them, he does know a lot about the people in the church at Rome, most likely having heard about them during the time he spent with Priscilla and Aquila at Corinth. And they obviously spoke fondly of them because Paul thanks God for the transformation that took place in their lives when they came to believe. Paul writes, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. However, some appear to have backslidden and allowed themselves to come under the unhealthy influence of sin once more. So he asks them to consider the consequences of their former lives under the influence of sin. What was the fruit, he asks? What good did it do you? What benefit did you gain from it? But this was a question that Paul could already answer. He knew that such a life made them ashamed, because that's what sin does. It makes us ashamed. It makes us want to separate from those we love and isolate ourselves. And ultimately, it brings death. He then gets them to consider the fruit of becoming slaves to God. That is, having their lives under the ruling influence of God. And this too he answers, stating that it leads to holiness, righteousness of character, and in the end, eternal life. And he sums all this up with what has become one of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the reason that this verse is so well known today is because it's widely and I, and I believe legitimately so, it's widely used in evangelism. However, it is sad though that the church today seems to have forgotten that Paul was not originally inspired that right, to write that verse for unbelievers. We seem to have forgotten that it was written for believers. Believers who needed to be corrected in their understanding of God's grace. Believers who had become mistaken in their belief that grace allowed them to continue to live under the reign of sin with God's approval. This verse was written as a warning and a correction. If they continue to live under the ruling influence of sin, they will end up getting what they deserve. For the way, for wages are deserved. Wages represent what you are owed for services rendered. However, God has not abandoned them, and he is still waiting to give them what they don't deserve, the free gift of eternal life. When was the last time you thanked God for not giving you what you deserve? When was the last time you thanked God for giving you what you don't deserve? For that is what grace really means. It's God's kindness to the undeserving. Now I began today mentioning some of the benefits of spending time in God's word. And I want to end today by thanking God for his word and for making the Bible available to us today. It's not a privilege that everyone in the world has. And even looking back in the past in this country, People gave their lives in order to have a Bible. 
You see, one of the things that this letter teaches us is that God does not abandon us when we get things wrong. If he did, then we wouldn't have the New Testament in its present form today. You see, even back in the first century, Christians, the early Christians, got things wrong. They took on false teachings and at times headed off in the wrong direction. However, God neither abandoned them nor did he condone what they did. Instead, he called them back. He raised up men like Paul to visit them or to write them precious letters like these saying, don't go that way, it brings harm, it leads to death. This is the way you should go. And when I look back over the past 30 years as a Christian, I thank God that when I've got things wrong, when I've taken on board false teachings and allowed myself to come under the influence of sin once more, that God has not abandoned me. He has, like a loving father, disciplined me and sent people into my life who love and live by his word. And they have lovingly said to me, not that way, son, he'll bring you home. This is the way you should go. You see, the letters in our New Testament really are the fulfilment of what God said in the Old. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. All through chapter 6, Paul has presented us with a choice. Who do we serve? Who is our master? To whom do we present our members as instruments for service? And when we pray to God, will we ask him to give us what we deserve? Or will we humble ourselves and ask him to graciously give us what we do not deserve? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life.